Well, this morning we are wrapping up uh, what we've been calling our Therefore series. So let me explain in case there may be some new people this morning, haven't been here the last couple weeks even. We are looking at passages of Scripture. We've been kind of, and some of y'all said, man, I really like this because I think it's, it's helpful to all of us. But we've been looking at Scripture and finding that word, therefore. Now, maybe before this series that didn't mean a whole lot to you or you didn't really think much about it. My goal has been um, through this whole series, uh, the last couple of weeks I've shared this with you, is every time you read the Scripture, every time you dive into God's Word and you start reading through it and you're just... You come to a word, you come to that word, you come to therefore. My goal is you're going to just stop and go, oh, whoa, 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 I remember that. I'm supposed to ask the question, what is that there for? And the whole goal is, is that when you come to that word, you go, wait a minute, stop. I need to figure out what it's there for, which is always or should always lead you back to what was just said prior to whatever's being said now. Okay, this is the goal. It's training our minds to think a little bit differently as we read through Scripture We want to know what was just said or explained before I came to this word. It's super, super important because we want whatever we're currently studying, whatever we're currently reading, we want it to make the most sense. We want to make sure we are applying it correctly to our lives. And the only way for us to do that, to have the most accurate application, what the author's trying to communicate, is to know, okay, well, it just said, therefore. So that means it must have said something prior to this that it's going to be really important for me to know, for me to get the the most benefit out of what I'm reading currently. So we took some time last week. We looked at Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. We're actually going to be in Romans again this morning, but several chapters later uh, in in chapter 12. And so if you've got your Bibles and you want to follow along this morning, please turn to Romans 12. We will get there in just a minute. Um, If Again, I feel like we have to set this up, right? This is what the whole series is about, is this word, therefore. In our text this morning, literally, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, starts with that word, therefore. So it's a perfect example of how this is where often we would just start reading right here, and honestly, without any perspective of what was just said or what was just taught prior to it. So um, if you go back before chapter 12, I'm going to do a little, hopefully unpack this a little bit for you. Um, Even if you read through all of Romans up to this point, and many of you have probably done that, many of you probably have not, if you've done it, you understand, especially through the first eight chapters, you're going to get this beautiful, one of the most detailed explanations of the gospel message ever written. And it is, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's a beautiful book. And you're going you're gonna to pick up really quickly through the first eight chapters that Paul is going to communicate and even over-communicate the fact of how we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. That is a theme that is over and over again he continues to make sure that we understand and we know. So, we again, we covered, then eventually what's going to happen is you're going to get to chapter 7 and 8 that we did last week. And if you weren't here, make sure you go back and watch that. It'll even help today's make that much more sense. And we hear Paul explain in chapter 7 and 8 and just details that battle we talked about last week that rages within all of us as we try to live out this, this godly life, this holy life that we've been called to live out. And so Paul talks a lot about the Spirit, right? We learned that last week in, in chapter 8 and how the Holy Spirit is the one that has to move in and through us for us to be able to accomplish this. But even then, and Paul talked about this especially in chapter 7 even, we fail. You and I fail. We, we mess up. We make mistakes all the time. But then Paul always goes back. It's so beautiful. He always goes back and says, but that's where grace and mercy and forgiveness comes in. 
He just keeps pushing us back to understand who God is. Understand, understand the way God looks at you. And he always points us back to Jesus' finishing work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And then what happens typically is people come to chapters 9 through 11 and they go, what, what in the world's going on here? They kind of get lost in this. So there's a lot of people that look at chapters 9 through 11 um, as being completely disconnected or they don't see the relationship between the first eight verses or the last five chapters after it. It's almost like, what happened here? What did Paul do? Because the first eight chapters are all about how we are made righteous and how God works in and, and for his righteous people. And then the last five deal with how righteous people are to live. And so in between are these really, these three very complex, difficult chapters. I was talking to Jen about it this last week. You know, she always tries to coincide with what I'm teaching here and try to teach that to the kids in, in a different way. She's like, yeah, I've been reading all through Romans again, and I, I just finished with eight, and I'm about to start nine, and I was like, okay, well, be careful. Nine through 11 are, gonna, are probably going to throw you for a little bit of a loop, even though I know she's read them before. And just remember, <clears throat> nine through 11, a lot of people go, why is this even in the book of Romans at all? It just seems to be the logical question when you read it, because you're going, it just doesn't seem to add up. Well, eight ends with this tremendous crescendo of confidence, right? We read it last week. Paul explains that God guarantees our final perseverance because of our salvation is not based on our own will and strength. Instead, it's God who has called us, opened our minds to the truth, and now he carries us on to final glory. So he made that very, very clear. And now what Paul's doing in 9 through 11 is he's anticipating that his, someone from his audience, or probably <clears throat> a lot of his audience, are going to have some kind of a thought process of, wait a minute, Paul. I hear what you're saying, but I don't know that it makes sense because you say when God calls someone, he always brings them all the way home. And, but what about the Jews? I mean, it was the most logical thought process at that moment. What about these Jews? I mean, Jesus, the Messiah, who you say is the Messiah, who died and rose again, he was a Jew himself. He came through the Jewish people, all these Jewish promises. But yet most of the Jews don't believe. So, Paul, how, how is this happening? And, you know, God called them. He came to them, right, Paul? But most Jews have rejected Christ at that present time. And even to this day, the majority of the Jewish nation or people um, are not Jesus as the Messiah believing people. Now, there is a sect of them that does. There's lots of them that do. But when you do the entire Jewish nation, most of them do not. And remember, we read in the book, it, well, if you read in the book of Acts, if you go back and you study that and you read the early church, you realize just how small of a sect it really was. It says there was 120. That's what the church started with, the early church, 120 people. So if they're saying if God promised that Israel would be his people, yet the majority did not believe in Christ, does that mean that God's promise, power, mercy is somehow failing? It, Paul's anticipating this. We, I know where you guys are thinking. I know what you're going to next. So the question of the Jewish unbelief was just of this vital importance in it. It really what it does is it ends up taking Paul into this deep dive into who God is and how God works. And so in those three chapters, 9 through 11, Paul does his best to explain and talk about the sovereignty of God. Now, if you were here several weeks back, maybe even months now back, we dealt with the sovereignty of God and predestination and all these things that just blow our minds and make us go, wow, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And that's part of the reason why 9 through 11 are so difficult for some of us to understand or wrap our minds around. We know how difficult that thought process is. But Paul does, does this by first what he does is he explains that the promises of God given in the Old Testament 
were never given, this is important, never given automatically to anyone who had physically descended from the patriarchs. See, there was this thought process, oh, I'm a Jew. Physically, I descended from the Jews, so therefore, somehow, I'm good. And he's like, no, that's not the way this works. Meaning a spiritual faith was what was necessary to inherit the promises to Israel. And then second, he points out that the spiritual faith that, in, that inherits the promises is ultimately a function of God's choice. So again, he goes into the sovereignty of God. So the situation that Paul has been describing all along in Romans 9 is that a growing majority of the church was Gentile. In general, the Gentiles were more responsive than the Jews to the gospel message. And it was kind of crazy. You would think it would be the other way around. <clears throat> Even the Jews were God's Old Testament people. But the Jews were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and continuing to believe in this, what we've talked about a lot, uh, a works-based salvation of, if I keep the law, this is how I am saved. And of course, and you read this, you feel this, you sense this when you read Paul's letters, is it broke Paul's heart that they were believing this and thinking this way because these were his people. Paul was a Jew himself, and it's, it's breaking his heart that this is the way they're thinking and believing. He's thinking of all people. You should be the ones who believe. And so for this reason, Paul has to deal with this question in chapter 11 of, did God reject his people? And that's what they're kind of throwing at him. Did God reject ethnic Israel? After all the promises that God has made to Abraham and David, so many others throughout Israel's history, why doesn't God turn their hearts toward him? And so the question is, has he abandoned them? Has God abandoned them? And Paul immediately answers this with a huge no. By no means is that what's happening or what is taking place. And in the rest of Romans 11, he writes in detail why he answers no. And his central argument is this. God has not rejected Israel because Israel's unbelief is not total. He's like, you guys are assuming that it's all over and done with. As if what we see right now is the way it's going to end up being. And it's just not true. And he goes on to point out that it is perfectly possible for Jews to be included in the people of God. In verse 23, he says a version of this. If they, don't, if they do not, he's talking about the Jews, if they do not persist in unbelief, God is able to graft them in again. So he's saying if God was able to save those, what he calls wild by nature, the Gentiles, how much more able is God to bring the Jews, the natural branches, back into their own olive tree? And then chapter 11, Paul says this as well. He says that the current unbelief of Israel is not permanent. Matter of fact, he says that there's going to be a large-scale turning of Jews to Christianity in the future. Many of scholars believe this will take place in the end times, but there will be this mass turning to God by the Jews. But for now, he says, please understand, God is not showing preference. All people, both Gentiles and Jews, they've been disobedient. Yet all people from Gentiles and Jews, those who have been saved, have been saved by God's grace and his mercy. And so that's how we get to chapter 12. He, he's done this beautiful job of explaining the gospel. He's even dealt with a very difficult thought process of, oh, yeah, but what about the Jews? Because they're, they're just trying to turn Paul away from God's really not that good. God's not really that merciful because look at this people. And he's like, no, 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 you guys are getting this all wrong. You're messing this up. Paul wanted to rule out any error of thinking of God in any other way than good, gracious, and merciful. So he spends 11 chapters doing that, painstakingly going through and saying, this is who God is. This is the way God works. This is how he loves. This is his grace. This is his mercy. And it's only by his 
grace that you are saved through faith. And now he's going to give an outline of Christian living that should come from a knowledge of and a trust in this grace-filled gospel that, again, he spent 11 chapters explaining. He's now saying, now that you know all that, again, therefore is coming from, because of the 11 chapters you've hopefully just read, because of all the things I've just explained to you, you should now know this. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of what I've just explained to you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul says, based off again, what I've just said about our great and merciful God, the only sufficient motivation for the Christian life is gratitude for grace. Don't you hear that again? The only sufficient motivation for the Christian life is gratitude for grace. Paul uses this word urge here, right? He's like, I'm urging you. I'm encouraging you. I want you to do two things in, in view of God's mercy. I want you to, and, and they're super important, and he lays them out. And the first one is, I want you to offer, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now, when he says that, you need to, it helps again to know your word and to especially know the Old Testament and the temple times because Paul is using temple terminology here. <clears throat> the metaphor is using here is this of, the, of a worshiper coming to the temple um, with, with the sacrifice. And in the Old Testament times, they had a couple different kinds of, of offerings that you would bring. One was a sin offering in which a worshiper would sh- bring the shedded blood of an animal asking for forgiveness. Well, we know, and you can read all of the book of Hebrews, and it's going to tell you this as well, Jesus is our sin offering. So this is obviously not the type of thing that Paul is talking about here. It had to be, when, when, when you had the sin offering, it was to cover your sins. That's been taken care of. The second kind of temple offering was what they called a whole burnt offering, which was a valuable animal from your flock. You made sure that it was without defect, it was holy, without blemish. And the reason you did that was that it showed that you were willing to give God your best. This was something that was serious to you. You weren't giving God your leftovers. This said something about you. And a burnt offering was always burnt totally, and it represented complete devotion to God. So when Paul refers to us being a living sacrifice, he is calling us to be fully at God's disposal. This is what he means. When he says living, by the way, you need to take that as understanding. He's meaning daily. This isn't a one-time sacrifice. A living sacrifice. So it means every day, a living sacrifice. And of course, when he says sacrifice, he means dying. So this is a daily death that we are to have. That's what he's encouraging us to be. A daily death to ourselves, to our desires, to our plans, Daily death to our selfish wants and pleasures. It's what Jesus meant when he said to his followers in, in, in Luke chapter 9, you know, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily to follow me. This is what a holy life looks like. This is what Paul is calling us to. To be holy is to be utterly pure, completely set apart. And you and I as Christ followers are called to daily give over our lives, our bodies, in obedience to God. But this is a big part. I want you to hear this. But the motivation to do that has to come from the right place. The motivation to live this way has to come solely by our view of God's mercy. 
as we stand daily at the foot of the cross and we see his son dying in our place, when we see that, when we sense that, when we feel that, when we finally understand the mercy of God, the grace of God, what Jesus did for us, when that clicks, when that makes sense to us, when we really get how great his love is for us, then the motivation will come to live this way, that we will be a living sacrifice. Paul says when we do this, when we live like this, we please God. Again, we don't do, this is in no way saying you do this and this is how you are saved. No, we do this out of gratitude because he's already saved us. Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. What does he mean by that? Well, unfortunately, the English translation really misses an important word here. Because in the Greek, Paul says that this offering of ourselves is our logician worship. That's the Greek word there. The word literally is where we get the word logical, okay? Meaning the only logical response for us is to make a sacrificial offering of our lives. So look at it this way. Paul is simply saying, once you have a proper view of God's mercy, anything less than a total, complete sacrifice of yourself to God is completely irrational. So he says, listen, the first thing I'm urging you to do in response to God's mercy is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Then verse 2, he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So first, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Second, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He's laying out a radical way of living. He's literally telling us ahead of time, it's so radical, it's going to require a transformed mind to pursue it. You're going to have to change the way you think in order to live this way. Remember, he says, in view of God's mercy, Paul is saying in order for us to live this life that we've been called to live, our minds have to be consumed with the truth about Jesus. We can't think about God's mercy as just in the general sense. It's just not going to be enough for us to go around going, yeah, God is good. Praise God. God is good. And it, it's just this general thing that we say because we've heard other people say it. It has to become personal with us. We need to be hyper-focused on the specific act and deeds, especially the cross. It, it's one of the reasons we take every single, every single week, every time we have a service like this, we take communion. It's not because in the Bible it commands you have to do it every single time you have a Sunday morning service or you're in the wrong, <clears throat> but we believe that it does best represent the way they did it in Scripture. But more importantly, we don't want a service to go by where there's somebody in this place, maybe for the very first time, doesn't get to hear that there's a God that loved them so much that he sent his son to die in their place. That was their place. That was their cross, that he took their sin. We want us, everyone to understand that. We want to dwell on that. Our minds have to be consumed with the truth about Jesus. And here's, this is just a little side note. If you're lacking a passion or an interest of being holy, this is more than likely part of your issue, a failure to contemplate God's mercies towards you. You just don't get it yet. It's just not really hit home yet. You don't really understand what Jesus did for you. Or maybe you just don't believe it. Because the moment you believe it, the moment that it becomes real to you, the moment that you realize who God is and what he did, and that light bulb goes off, everything else will change. And this goes for all of us. There's no way for us to sustain a pattern of holiness in Christian living without a fire in our hearts that's only coming 
from this deep meditation on God's mercy and grace. This is why we constantly say, be in your word. Every day, open your word. Every day, be focused on the word. Every day, be reading and and thinking about the Lord and talking to the Lord. It's so important if we're going to live this life that is literally a living sacrifice. It's the only way that our minds are going to be transformed. Paul wants us to see and understand the importance of reminding ourselves daily that the only rational response to Christ giving all of himself is for us to give all of ourselves to him. I love this quote uh, from Tim Keller. He says, To fail to give ourselves in complete obedience to God is not only offensive morally, it is a failure to think clearly. We come to grips with the one who surrendered himself utterly for us only to the extent that we surrender ourselves utterly to him. It is the only sensible thing to do. Paul's point here is pretty simple. To have a transformed mind requires us to make a time regularly where we meditate intentionally on who Jesus is and what he's done. I promise you if you're not doing that on a daily basis, on a consistent basis, you're going to struggle with living this way. All of us will. Verse 3, he says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So part of being transformed in view of God's mercy is to have the right view of ourselves. Understand, Paul's not just talking about, you know, don't be arrogant and, and, and be humble. Um, you know, see others better than yourselves. Those are important things. We read that through Scripture. That's not necessarily what he's getting at here, though. We, we need to acknowledge what we are good at so we can serve others. We've got we to gotta be sober-minded about ourselves. Paul says, get your mind right when you think about yourself. Obviously, don't think you're all that. But just as important also is don't think about yourself too low either. I don't know if you've been around those people, but I mean, there's some people in this world that they just walk around with their heads hung low all the time. And it's like, oh, I'm just not good. At it. I mean, they're Eeyore Christians, right? You know, I, 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 I'm just not good at anything. God never gave me any gifts. I don't play any instruments. I can't sing. I can't build anything. I'm, nobody cares about me. I mean, you know those people. You, you're just like, oh, my gosh. They're like exhausting to be around. First of all, they're, they're lying to themselves and to you. They're just, and to me, they're just as exhausting and just as annoying as the person that walks around going, yeah, I'm all that, and I'm, God bless me, and man, look at me, and look how amazing I am, and I'm good at everything. And you know those people because they're in our lives as well. And they just, wow, wow, you have a lot of confidence. You're very arrogant, right? You, you've heard those people too. Neither side is good. They're both wrong. Paul's saying have a sober mind. Get to the middle here. Understand who you are. Don't, don't act like you're all that, but also make sure. Sh- very, very careful that you're not putting yourself way down here where you're not supposed to be either. Which to those people, and I've said this for 23 years of, of, of preaching and teaching here, it's just kind of been a motto. I think I read this a long time ago in a book somewhere. I can't honestly tell you where it came from. I just remember reading it, and it's kind of been like this mantra that's always been in my mind is that when we say we can't do something, we are saying more about our belief in God than we are about ourselves. And that's where a lot of us live and exist. I can't do this. I can't do that. When you say that, really, you're saying a whole lot more about your belief in God than anything else. Because 
with, the, with God, we're told we can do anything, right? Now, I mean, I know there's limitations to this, but it, it's this concept that Paul's trying to draw our minds to of having sober judgment. And here's, by the way, something, this is something the gospel does. This is, this is how incredible the gospel is. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about the gospel in this frame of mind, but the gospel does this for us. It prevents us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, right? It's very clear. The gospel is very clear that we are sinners. You and I are not good. We're not inherently good. We're horrible people. We needed a savior. All of our efforts on our best day, right? All of our best things we can ever do, they're like filthy rags. There's nothing we could do to save ourselves. We had to have a savior. And we were saved entirely by another's kindness, by the goodness and grace of of our Lord and Savior. That's the only way we get saved. So we, the, the gospel does a great job of putting us where, in our place, that we're not all that. But the gospel also prevents us from thinking of ourselves in a more lowly way than we should because, because we are saved sinners. We are loved. We are valued. And we are called sons and daughters of the Most High King. We, we just read that last week whose opinion of us is the only one that ultimately matters. And so the gospel shows us both, listen, you're not all that. Oh my goodness, God loves you so much. And he's got a plan for your life. And so it balances us out. See, Paul wants us to have this proper view of ourselves because we have all have this role to play, or in many cases, roles to play in this life that we're living in Christ. And this is what he's going to go into, verses 4 through 8. He says this, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, or if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So Paul says we are the same in our standing in the gospel. That's for sure. But we are different in our abilities to minister to others. This is so beautiful how God has set this up. God has given each one of us, even in just this room, and there's many more people that will watch this online, and he's given us all distinct personalities, right? Distinct temperaments. We all have a different history. We all came from different places. And all of that has equipped us for a particular set of good works that God has created for us to do. It is beautiful how God has brought us together. That's what makes the church so beautiful. It's full of so many different people from so many different places, so so many different backgrounds. God has deliberately ordered his church as he created the human body to be dependent on each other. And so... Just like our, our, our body, again, and, and Paul goes into this in Corinthians a lot more in depth, talking about the different parts of the body and how they all have to work together or none of them can do their job. It's the same way the church functions and the church is able to work. It's when we all come together, we all use our gifts and our abilities and we understand who we are and what God has done in us and through us, that then we begin to function as the church is supposed to function. So if you aren't doing your part, here's what I want you to know. The whole body is suffering because of it. I want us to feel that weight. Again, if our goal is to please God, we need to find out what God has equipped us best to do 
and we do it for His glory above anything else we do. It's got to become the most important thing that we do with our lives. Now that list that Paul gives, right, verses 6 through 8, I mean, it's not an exhaustive list. There's probably gifts and talents in this place that aren't even listed there, but here's what I would also say to that. I'm very confident that everyone in here can look even at that list and find something they would agree with. They would say, you know, if I was going to pick one thing out, I would probably say that God's gifted me in that area. I do have a little bit of that. I can see that being a gift in my life. Some of you look at that list and you go, man, I... I don't, I don't want to brag. I don't want to be boastful, but actually I can see multiple things in that list that God's gifted me with. But remember this. God has literally given you that gift or those gifts for a reason. Do you realize that? Do you sense that this morning? You have been given the gifts and abilities and talents that you've been given for a reason. So the next question that should be on every single one of our minds is, what am I doing with my gifts that God's given me? That's where we should be kind of sitting right now. What am I doing with the gifts that God has given me? And the answer to that question is so, so important, church. The way we answer this is is key to everything. And here's why. Because you weren't given and you weren't gifted those things to use for your own glory. And here's what I'm going to tell you. And be honest, I'm sitting up here. I'm just like you guys. And there are things that God has gifted me with and given me and and blessed me with that it's very easy to then use for my own gain. You have been gifted and blessed with certain things that it would be very easy for you to use it for your own glory and solely your own glory. That personality wasn't given to you so you could work deals and sell a lot of stuff and make a lot of money and talk people into doing things for you or even doing things that they shouldn't do, evil things. That gift of teaching wasn't given to you just so you could have a job and, oh, and I have summers off and it's glorious. I'm so glad God made me a teacher. That's not the sole reason it was given to you. That ability that you have to fix anything, to build anything, it wasn't just so you could build your own kingdom and use it to to make a ton of money and, and to do things that you love to do and make things that you love to have or other people even maybe love to have. All of our gifts were given to us first and foremost to bring glory to God. We have to understand that because this is very dangerous. This gifting that we've been given, and again, some of us have been given more than others, and we don't understand why God does that always the way he does it. We just know whatever he has gifted us to do, and we've all been gifted something. It's for a reason, and how we use it determines whether we're going to please God with it or not. And here's what I mean. And, and I know I'm kind of getting very particular. And I'm not trying to pick apart one person or another. I'm just trying to get us to feel it, see it, and understand it. So if your response when you're asked to teach in the church, for instance, when you're asked to teach is, I don't want to do that. I do that all week long. Literally, I mean, I teach all week long. And then now you want me to come to church and teach? I'm telling you, if that's your answer, That is the most selfish answer you could ever give because that gift was given to you first and foremost to teach the the gospel message, whether that's to kids or adults or whatever or anything in between. Now, again, if your response to serving in the church anywhere, like, hey, we need, would you mind doing this? We, you know, I know you think you'd be good at this. You know, I know what you do for a living or I know I see this in you. Would you mind? And and I know Julie, that's kind of what she does here at our church, right? She's our connections director. She connects people and gets people to serve and do things and 
she hears this. I heard, I've heard this my whole life in, in, in church world. You hear the man, I, I would, I work all week long and I'm tired and I don't want to have to come to church and then work again. I mean, that's just not what I want to do. So basically what we're saying when this is our mindset, and that's just a couple examples, is I only want to use my gifts when it benefits me monetarily. Do you understand how selfish that is, church? I only want to use my gifts that God's given me when it benefits me personally. And I won't use them. I won't use them first and foremost to bring him glory. No, instead, I'm going to use them to where they benefit me most. And I may give God a little bit on the side. I may serve a little bit here. Don't, I don't want to overdo it. But you know how many of you would literally get up out of church right now if your phone rang so you could go work overtime so you could make a little bit more money in a second. But if you were asked to do something that was bigger, that there was something to do with the kingdom of God, you would make every excuse in the world. I'm not good at that. I can't do that. Oh my gosh, I don't want to do that. I'm too busy. I got too many things going on. I we just can't do that. We just can't come up with the, the funds to be able to do something like that. But we'll go do this and we'll go do that and we'll go and I'll work as extra if I got to work extra so we can go do. But when it comes to the glory of God, our mindset completely changes. Our willingness to do what God wants us to do becomes secondary or third or fourth or fifth or it's way down there. And we're giving God these leftovers. It's anything but a, a life that is a living sacrifice to him. Living for him, serving him, doing what he's called us to do comes first and foremost. If we can somehow get paid to do that as well, if we can somehow be blessed financially because those gifts God gave us are able to be used in other places, praise God for that. That's why he says, listen, I'll keep blessing you, but then we keep getting blessed and we just keep giving it back to him. This is the way it's supposed to work. Paul says, you need to be of sober judgment. You need to make sure you, you're understanding who you are and what God's gifted you to do. So if God's blessed you financially, yet you, you, you don't give generously for his glory, you aren't being a living sacrifice and pleasing to God. This is just, this is why I believe even, and, we, and I don't want to harp on this. I know we spent some time on this already the, last week or the week before. But I believe that's why there's this percentage thing going on throughout scripture when it comes to this because you'll hear us say this a lot in the coming weeks even when it comes to this whole campaign thing right and it's not just financially but it's also just in our daily lives and what we do and how we give it's like it's not about equal gifts it's about equal sacrifice it's about us all sacrificing equally making god first and paul is saying here the reason why we struggle with this the reason why we have this kind of upside down so many times in our lives. And, and I, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to pause and say this because I feel like I am always tending to be the bearer of bad news and, and complaints, and I don't want to be that guy. I also want to say to you that a week ago, we dealt with giving, right? We dealt with this kind of issue, this topic. We talked about are we doing what we should be doing, and I've had many of you come to me and uh, say to me, listen, I want you to know we talked about this we dealt with this and we realized we aren't doing what we're supposed to be doing and we will. And I want you to know this last, last Sunday was the first Sunday since our new budget year that we met budget, that you guys stepped up, that the church stepped up, that you guys heard that message. You heard what God was calling you to do and you didn't just get offended and mad and leave, but that you said, I'm going to be in response to this. I know that I'm called to do this and I'm going to do my part. Again, I'm going to make sure the church isn't suffering because of something I'm not doing. I want to be a part of this. And because you did that, and I don't know what this week looks like, but I know what last week looked like. And I just wanted to say, thank you for listening to God's word. Thank you for responding the way that you have. 
as we move forward. Again, that wasn't supposed to be said, but I feel like it needed to be said. And what Paul's saying here is the reason why this happens to us, why we do struggle with this, why this is difficult for us, why we struggle with selfishness or laziness or disobedience, it's because we don't have our minds right. And that's why he started off with the way he started off. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that's got to be up front, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It goes back to our view of God, our relationship with Him. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. So if you take a hard look at your life, how you're living it, and you find that it's anything but a living sacrifice, this is what Paul's advice would be, okay? This is exactly what Paul would tell every single one of us. He'd say, look at your life. You're like, hmm, it's not where it should be. Here's what he would say to do. He would say, go back, fix your eyes on the cross. Go back, read about the mercies of God. Go back and see yourself in the gospel narrative and let it transform you from the inside out. So when you have a proper view of God, when you understand the mercies of God, when you understand that the only way you are saved is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, when you realize what God has done for you, you won't be able to do anything but be a living sacrifice for Him. And it will impact and touch every part of your lives, especially the gifts that you've been given because you're going to realize these came from God. Of course I'm going to then use them to glorify Him. If you want to be a living sacrifice that's pleasing to God, we have to be willing to sacrifice our time, our talents, and our treasures. And we won't ever fully sacrifice those things until we have a proper view of God's mercy. So here's what I want to close with. This is probably the best prayer we could pray today, and every day maybe. And that is, God, give me a proper view of your mercy. Don't let me ever forget or lessen in my mind how great your love is for me and what you have done to save me. I, I, I hope that that will be our prayer every single day. Lord, please let me never forget who you are, what you have done, and let the motivation then for me to be this living sacrifice come from that place. Therefore, because of all the things I've just described to you, Paul says, because of the goodness, faithfulness, graciousness of God. Be a living sacrifice. Transform your minds. And begin to live the way he's gifted you to live for his glory and not your own. Let's pray.